Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History Podcast. Episode 9, 1907-08 vs England, The Big Ship. The unsuccessful 1905 Australians returned home in time to take part in that season's Sheffield Shield. The opening match between South Australia and Victoria saw an innings victory to Victoria, with Peter McAllister and Warwick Armstrong scoring big hundreds, whilst Jack Saunders, highlighting his absence from the previous tour, took nine wickets for the match. Once again, though, New South Wales was dominant, winning all four of their matches to take out another shield. Monty Noble scored over 500 runs with two centuries, whilst Tibby Cotter took 24 wickets. The Australian touring side reunited in January to play a benefit match against New South Wales for JJ Kelly, the retiring Australian wicketkeeper. The match raised £1,300 for Kelly and ended with New South Wales falling just short of a chasing 525, with Cotter taking six wickets in the final innings to win the match for the Australians. Following the season, the Melbourne Cricket Club attempted to gain assurances from 10 leading New South Wales players, including Cotter, Duff, Noble, Trumper and Hopkins, that they would be available for selection if the club brought an English touring side out. The deal was kept secret for months, but when it was leaked it caused uproar, particularly amongst Board of Control members. Victorian Ernie Bean accused the Melbourne Club of treachery, whilst the New South Wales Cricket Association went a step further and suspended all players who had signed contracts for the Melbourne Club. One of the suspended players, Jim Mackay, decided to move to South Africa rather than repudiate his contract. He had scored 559 runs with three centuries in the previous Shield season and was considered by Clem Hill to be one of the best batsmen in the world. Once in South Africa, he played for Transvaal, scoring two centuries and looked certain to be selected for South Africans' upcoming tour of England. However, he was knocked down by a motorbike and, after nearly dying, lost sight in one eye. He moved back to Australia but couldn't recapture the same form and his career ended shortly after. Meanwhile, the tensions in Australian cricket continued to rise. Noble defended the players' rights, but the mood in New South Wales was on the side of the association. Darling, Hill and Labor all announced that they would not play in Sydney until the other players' suspensions were lifted. Trumper helped defuse the tensions somewhat by taking a side, including Cotter and Hopkins, to Queensland for a tour, helping to boost the fortunes of cricket in the region. Trumper also took a job in Hanson Carter's sports store, where he infuriated his boss by giving away cricket bats to impoverished children. Finally, after much toing and froing, the MCC relented in their push for a tour in exchange for a seat on the Board of Control and guaranteed that all Tests and Shield games played in Victoria would be played at the MCG. Following this, the New South Wales Cricket Association lifted suspensions on their cricketers, allowing them to play in the upcoming Shield season. On the other side of the world, England made a tour to South Africa following their Ashes success over 1905-06. The side was not a strong one. Led by Warner, it featured Denton, Blythe and Hay, who had paid in the previous Ashes, whilst Wynard had played a test back in 1896. The South Africans had a secret weapon in the wrongen. Reggie Swartz, who had played at Middlesex and learnt the delivery from Bosanquay, took it back with him to South Africa and taught it to three others, Aubrey Faulkner, Bert Fogler and Gordon White. This gave the South Africans an advantage, especially as the English batting was not strong. After South Africa won the first test by a wicket, with Dave North scoring 93 not out and putting on 48 for the last wicket with a captain Sherwell, they comfortably took out the five-test series 4-1, marking both the first test and series victory by South Africa. This would lead to the first South African tests on English soil in 1907. The one bright spot for the English was the form of debutant Frederick Fane, who scored over 300 runs in the tests. With their suspended plays returning to the side, New South Wales once again easily won the Shield, with victories in all four of their games in the 06-07 series. 
Their bowling led the way, with Noble taking 23 wickets and Cotter 17, whilst newcomer Charlie McCartney, who had debuted the previous season, took 16 with his left arm spin. Their victory was all the more impressive given the absence of Trumper, who only played one match for the season. The season was also notable for the feat of Charles Gregory, son of Ned and brother of Sid, who scored 383 for New South Wales against Queensland, the highest first-class score by an Australian to that time. Gregory had been close to test selection in the past, but would never get there, dying in 1910 at the age of 32 from blood poisoning derived from ear abscess. The Board of Control, now firmly in charge of Australian cricket, finally cajoled South Australia into joining after holding out for 20 months. They did so on the proviso that it would receive a test match when English teams toured Australia. Tasmania also joined later in 1907, despite the advice from Joe Darling that they should stay out. With the Melbourne club humbled, the only opposition to the board came from the players, who were critical of the way the board conducted its affairs, in particular two dominant figures in Ernie Bean from Victoria and William McElhone from New South Wales. As such, the players were denied a seat at the table. With the admittance of the other two states, however, Lords was satisfied that the board now represented Australian cricket and agreed to a tour under board sponsorship to be undertaken in the 1907-08 season. Before the English would arrive, they faced South Africa who played their first test matches on English soil. Following on from their good form at home, the South Africans pushed England all the way, with the home side coming out slender 1-0 victors. Once again, their googly bowlers, Schwartz, Vogler, White and Faulkner led the way. Between them, they terrorised the English batsmen throughout the tour, whilst the batting of Dave Norse and Faulkner also gave them strong platforms, showing that South African cricket was starting to develop to the level where it would compete consistently with England and Australia. It led to the call for a triangular tournament, where the three nations would face off to declare a champion of cricket. Just prior to the commencement of the Australian domestic season in 1907, Victor Trump had dipped his toes into another big sport in Sydney, rugby. Leading up to 1907, many players were disgruntled with the administration of rugby, with the amateur ethos dominant, many players struggled to cover costs despite rugby being immensely popular and drawing huge crowds each week. Eventually, like their counterparts in England had done, they decided to form a breakaway league. Trumper, who now owned his own sports shop, used it to host discussions and eventually the New South Wales Rugby Football League was formed. This created a split between what we call today Rugby League and Rugby Union. Trumper was elected the first treasurer of the league and played a key role in convincing Daly Messenger, the best rugby player of his day, to switch to the new code. The English would bring a side with a mixture of experience and youth. It was to be led by Arthur Jones, an amateur from Nottingham who had been playing on and off against the Australians since 1899. The Australian Board of Control offered terms that were unappealing to some of the best players, including Foster, Haywood, Hurst, Tildesley and Lilly, whilst Fry wasn't even considered. There were still six players chosen who had played in Australia before, with Rhodes, Braun, Blythe, Fielder and Barnes, who was persuaded to make the trip after skipping the previous one. This left the rest of the side to be made up from newcomers. They included Fred Fain and Ernest Hayes, who had played in the test against South Africa, batsman Joe Hardstaff, Jack Hobbs, and what would be the first of five Australian tours for the future great, Kenneth Hutchings, and wicketkeepers Joe Humphreys and Dick Young. George Gunn, whose uncle and brother had both played test cricket for England and was heading of his own volition to Australia because of his health, was hired as the team scorer. It was assumed that, in the event of injury to other players, Gunn could fill in as required. The English travelled by boat to Australia, when they stopped in Perth, they played their first tour game against the Western Australian side, the first time such a match had taken place. WA featured former Test fastman Ernie Jones, but the old firebrand had lost much of his pace and was ineffective as the English won by an innings. Moving on to Adelaide, the English achieved another innings victory, with Jones, Hartstaff, Braun and Crawford all scoring centuries. A draw against Victoria followed, although the English held on by one wicket still 76 behind the total in a match that featured a century by young Victorian batsman Vernon Ransford. 
A crushing 408-run victory against New South Wales followed, with Fielder then Barnes taking six-week innings. Another innings victory followed against Queensland, with Blights taking 11 for the match. The final match before the first test was against an Australian 11, finishing in a rain-affected draw. Still, the English had defied expectations and put in powerful performances to set the scene for a competitive Ashes series. However, it was not all smooth sailing for the English. Their captain, Jones, had come down sick after the Queensland game, so much so that he was unable to take his place in the first test in Sydney. Fame took charge, whilst Gunn was drafted in to take Jones' place. Surprisingly, the English captain, on the apparent advice of Rhodes, chose Younger's wicketkeeper over Humphreys, despite Humphreys being regarded as one of the top keepers in England at the time. Hobbs and Hayes were the other two to miss out. As for the Australians, declining form and retirements meant that the side of the first test would be very different to that had played in the final test in England over two years previously. The Board of Control had chosen former players Frank Iredale and Joe Darling to act as selectors, joined by current Victorian batsman Peter McAllister. McAllister was seen as the board's man on the panel, and was suspected as having reported back to them regarding what was going on in the dressing room. It was also suspected that he had talked to the other selectors into picking him to replace Duff as Trumper's opening partner and to continue picking him afterwards, even when his form didn't warrant it. Noble took back the captaincy with Darling's retirement. He was joined by Trumper, Hill, Armstrong and Cotter from the last test played by Australia. Saunders and Hanson Sammy Carter, both notable absences from the 1905 tour, took their place, with Carter making his debut having been stuck behind Kelly after first touring for Australia back in 1902. The final places went to three further debutants, all-rounder Charlie McCartney from New South Wales, Vernon Ransford and Jerry Hazlitt, a right-arm fast off-break bowler, both from Victoria. Fame won the toss under a cloudless sky and chose to bat. He entered the field opening with Young in front of 15,000 spectators. However, they were soon in trouble. Young nicked the first ball through the slips off Cotter, just missing outstretched hands. With only 11 runs on the board, Fame was out for two, caught off a slower ball from Cotter by Trump at third slip. He was replaced by Gunn, but soon after Young was also out, caught off an inside edge by wicketkeeper Carter. England were in trouble with the score at 2 for 18. However, two of the debutants, Gunn and Hutchings, combined to start building some respectability. Hutchings was fortunate to be dropped by its slip by McAllister off Saunders early in his innings, but then drove most of the scoring, consistently whipping the bowlers to the leg side. Gunn was content to play second fiddle, but still found the boundary on occasion. He had some luck, as when Armstrong was brought on, he jumped out and missed, only for Carter to fumble the stumping. The score was raised to 91 before the breakthrough came, with Hutchings caught and bowled for 44 by Armstrong, although many in the crowd thought it was a bump ball. Braun joined Gunn and the two took the score to 106 at lunch, with Gunn on 41. Following lunch, Armstrong bowled tightly, only going for three runs and six overs before Gunn struck him to the off-boundary. This opened up the scoring more, with Gunn going past 50 and now finding little difficulty from the Australian bowlers. Braun played safely, allowing Gunn to drive most of the total. The 150 was raised with Gunn having scored half that amount, before a flurry of boundaries then saw Gunn raise his century after only two hours at the crease, becoming the fifth Englishman to raise 100 on debut. He saw the total go past 200 before he was out, with Cotter returning to the bowling crease to having caught by Hazlitt in the slips. He ended on 119 with 20 boundaries and had dominated a 117-run partnership with Braund. Hardstaff joined Braund at 4 for 208. From here, there was a partial collapse, with Braund out for 30, and then Rhodes run out after miscommunication with Hardstaff for 1. This left the English at 6 for 223 at T. Following the break, Crawford joined Hardstaff. Both batsmen were looking streaky, with Crawford gaining a few boundaries through edges, before Hardstaff played around a straight one from Armstrong and was bowled for 12. Barnes followed soon after for 1, having his stump smashed by Cotter. Blythe joined Crawford at 8 for 253. 
Crawford was able to find a couple more boundaries before the final two wickets were taken within two runs of each other, ending the English innings on 273, with Crawford having made 31. Cotter and Armstrong shared these final two, giving them six and three for the innings respectively, clearly the most threatening bowlers that the Australians had. The Australians had around 40 minutes left to bat in the day. They opened with Trumper and McAllister. McAllister was out of the final ball of the second over, caught by Hutchings off Barnes. Hill joined Trumper and then the two were able to see out the rest of the day, although Trumper was lucky to survive when he edged the ball through the slips. They took the score to 50 at the close, with Trumper on 31 and Hill 16, ending a good day for the Australians after having lost the toss. The cool grey skies didn't keep the patrons away from day two, with over 30,000 in attendance as the Australians looked to build upon their solid foundation. Trumper started with a late cut off fielder for four and looked set for a big score. However, he was out within 20 minutes of the commencement of play for 43, bowled off his pads by fielder. He was replaced by Noble, who joined Hill with a score of two for 72, and was well received by his home crowd. It was Hill, though, that pushed the score forward, hitting a square cut, off drive, and then a straight drive, all to the fence to take the Australian score over 100. Fane switched his bowlers to Braun and Blythe, but this suited Hill, who made good use of his feet to get to the pitch of the ball, bringing up his half-century. Noble was not so comfortable against Braun and had few near misses, including a difficult court and bowl chance when he was on 19. Despite this, the two took the side to lunch without further loss at 2 for 154, with Hill on 72 and Noble 35. 14 runs were added following lunch before Noble lost his wicket, caught by Braundoff Fielder for 37. This sparked a collapse. Hill was out 13 runs later for 87, caught at third man off Fielder. He batted for just over two hours and hit eight boundaries. Two Victorians, Armstrong and Ransford, came together, but Armstrong could only manage seven before he became Fielder's fourth victim of the day. The Australians had lost three for 20 to now sit at five for 184, still trailing by 89 runs. McCartney joined Ransford, and the two debutants steadied the innings taking the score past 200. They had put on nearly 40 runs when Fane decided to introduce Rhodes for the first time in the innings. This had the desired effect, with Ranson edging him to Braun at slip, who completed the catch of the second attempt. Carter replaced him with a score at 6 for 222. It took Australia to tee with McCartney, with the latter batsman striking Rhodes for a cover drive for four to take the Australians to the break at 239. Following tee, McCartney had some luck when dropped by Gunn at slip. This luck didn't last though as he's out shortly after, caught by the keeper for 35 off fielder. Hazlitt and Carter took the score from 253 to 277 before Carter was out for 25, bowled by Braund. Newman Cotter played a wild slog to the same bowler and was bowled for two. The Australians only led by eight when the final partnership of Hazlitt and Saunders came together. They managed to take the Australian score to an even 300 before Saunders was the last man out, with Hazlitt left not out 18. Fielder claimed the final wicket to finish with 6 for 82 for the innings, whilst Braun claimed two. Trailing by 27 runs, the English still had on a half an hour to see out the day. Rhodes was promoted to open with Fane, and the two managed to get through without loss, taking the score onto 19 by stumps. Following the usual Sunday rest day, play resumed on the Monday. Rain clouds threatened, but ultimately stayed away as 12,000 spectators arrived to watch the English continue. Rhodes and Fane faced Cotter and Armstrong, with runs coming quickly off the former, whilst the latter was played circumspectly. The total was able to rise to 50 with little difficulty, leading to McCartney being introduced to the attack. This brought immediate success, with Rhodes caught at slip for 29. Gunn joined Fane at 56, and the first inning Centurion picked up where he had left off, hitting some crisp drives through the offside. Saunders was brought into the attack and had Fane brilliantly caught by Noble for 33. Newman Hutchings batted streakly, scoring at a run a minute before his luck ran out, skying a ball to Armstrong off Saunders. He'd made 17 and taken the score to 3 for 105, with lunch having been taken. Following the break, Hardstuff joined Gunn. With the sun coming out and beating down on the players, the score moved along slowly. 
The quality of the bowling was high, so the batsmen focused on keeping their wickets. The score moved past 150, with Noble rotating through his options. Hazlitt managed to get the edge of Gunn when he was on 46, but McAllister had slipped, couldn't complete the catch. Gunn punished this drop by taking 12 off the over, bringing up his half century. The two batsmen were able to make their way to T, taking the score on a 3 for 199, with Gunn on 66 and Hardstaff 49. After T, Hardstaff brought up his 50 with a fierce cut shot off Cotter for 4. He had the next ball for 4 as well, but should have been run out on the following. However, Cotter failed to get back to the stumps to complete a simple dismissal. Fortunately for the Australians, this didn't cost them much as Hardstaff was out soon after, bold leg stumped by Noble for 63, with 10 boundaries. He shared a 113-run stand with Gunn, who followed soon after for 74, caught off Cotter. Gunn's innings had lasted for almost three hours, including 11 fours. With the two set batsmen out, a collapse ensued. Newman Braun watched as first Young and then Crawford were out for single figures. The English had lost four for 23, with a score now on seven for 241. Barnes joined Braun and hung around for a while, although Newman complained to the umpires about the fading light. His appeal was rejected, and shortly after he was out, bowled by Saunders for 11. The famously prickly bowler complained to all within earshot about how he could barely see a ball for the past three overs. Light rain started to come down, but before the umpires called the playoff, Blythe became the ninth wicket to fall, having made a quick 5-15, giving his Saunders his fourth wicket. Play was called at this point, with English having moved to 9 for 293, a lead of 266. Upon resuming on the fourth day, the final pair added seven runs before Armstrong ended the innings, trapping number 11 fielder LBW. Braun was left 32 not out as the English posted 300, equal to the Australian's first innings. Saunders was the pick of the bowls with his four wickets, whilst Cotter and Noble claimed two apiece. The Australians were left with a chase of 274 to take a 1-0 series lead. The target was considered a gettable one, considering the slow nature of the pitch. Barnes and Fielder started for the English, whilst Trumper and McCartney opened for the Australians. Immediately, they were under pressure as Trumper was almost bowled by Barnes. In Barnes following over, an off-cutter cannoned off Trumper's sly onto the stumps, dismissing him for three. Hill came in next, but could only manage one before his off-stump was blasted out of the ground by Fielder. At two for 12, Noble joined McCartney. McCartney was lucky to survive an LBW shout from Barnes, whilst Noble got off the mark with a confident on-drive boundary, followed by an edge through the slips. The scorer moved to 23 before McCartney found his first boundary, a cut for four off Fielder. However, next ball he was out, caught by Crawford. The Australians were now teetering at 3 for 27. As Armstrong came to the crease, rain began to fall, getting heavier over the next 30 minutes. The fielders cut off many scoring opportunities, so much so that the score had only moved to 45 at lunch, although no further wickets had fallen. Following lunch, Noble was nearly run out, whilst Armstrong was dropped at second slip by Hutchings. The rain continued to get heavier and eventually sent the players from the field, ending the day's play early. The Australians have recovered somewhat to 3 for 63, but still needed 211 runs to win on a pitch that was bound to get more difficult due to the rain. No play occurred on day 5, as rain continued throughout. Day 6 was brighter though, and play was able to commence on time. Armstrong started well in the chase, hitting two off drives to four off fielder before taking a single off the last ball of the over. He then played out a maiden to Blythe. Barnes replaced Fielder and Noble, on the first ball of the day he faced, left a delivery that just clipped the edge of his off stump, with the bail dropping to the ground. Noble was gone for 27, with the score now at 4 for 72. Ransom joined Armstrong. The batting was slow, although both men hit Barnes for boundaries. However, after moving to 13, Ransford only half committed to a drive, popping the ball back to Blythe to depart. Half the side was now out with only 95 on the board, still needing 179 for victory. McAllister came to the crease and helped take the score past 100. He was then struck on the chin from a full toss from Blythe, getting little sympathy of the crowd as they said he should have sent the ball to the boundary. 
Armstrong looked comfortable in moving into the 40s, but a change of bowl to Crawford brought about his downfall when he was clean bowled. He made 44 and batted for almost two hours. Carter came in and proceeded to hit Crawford for three boundaries, two late cuts and a shot to square leg. This took the Australians to lunch with a score at 6 for 142. Following lunch, the runs began to flow. Both Carter and McAllister played aggressive cricket, looking to put the English under pressure. This had an impact as a simple catch from McAllister was dropped by the wicket-keeper Young. However, his luck would run out as Crawford was again successful upon being introduced to the attack, bowling McAllister for 41, having shared a 61-run stand with Carter. Carter came to the wicket with 88 runs required, but only three wickets remaining. He struggled at first with three balls from Barnes going just past his outside edge. He decided to stonewall whilst Carter did the bulk of the scoring, lifting Crawford to the square leg fence. Carter's 50 came up as the 200 was raised. Despite being on debut, he looked the best batsman in the match. He then took 11 off fielder, including two boundaries. However, having reached 61, he edged the same bowler behind and was caught. He had taken Australia to win 55 runs of victory, but now only the bowlers remained. Another debutante, Hazlitt, joined Cotter at the crease. Hazlitt hit Barnes for four, but then was lucky to escape when he edged the ball through the slips. Both batsmen were riding their luck, as a lofted shot from Cotter landed just between two converging fielders. Fane started rotating his bowlers looking for a breakthrough, but regular boundaries from the pair started to reduce the victory target. They got it down to 14 when Hazlitt hit a ball high out towards Hardstaff. The best fielder in the English team raced to get it, but couldn't control the ball when putting in a full dive. T was then taken with a dozen runs required. The excitement in the crowd reached fever pitch as the players returned. Hazlitt cut Rhodes for two, having to slide to get back into his ground. The batsmen began pushing and running to the fielders. On one occasion, a wild return granted the batsmen a further two overthrows. Finally, with two runs required, Hazlitt hit fields to the square leg boundary, giving the Australians their victory by two wickets. Cotter, who had made 33, and Hazlitt 34, were cheered all the way to the pavilion. The result drew comparisons with other tight matches, such as the 1882 Lord's Test or the two famous games from the 1902 series. The seesawing match saw the Australians take a 1 0 lead in the series, with many of their newer players playing key roles in the victory. Following the excitement, the English made their way to Victoria where they first faced an almost full-strength Victorian eleven, followed by a Bendigo 18 led by former Australian captain Harry Trott. Both matches ended in draws. The English were still without their captain Jones, who had remained in the Blue Mountains in New South Wales to recuperate. They made two changes from their first test side, with Young being replaced by the better keeper in Humphreys, whilst Blythe was left out, with Jack Hobbs, on test debut, taking his place. The successful Australian side was unchanged. Five inches of rain had fallen in Melbourne in the week previous to the test, but the first day of the match was clear and the ground had dried splendidly. This time Noble was successful at the toss and chose to bat. Trumper and McCartney opened the batting with Fielder bowling the first over. Trump hit the first ball to fine leg for four, but was then lucky to survive as he edged a ball, only to be dropped in the slips. From there, both batsmen were cautious, leaving much of the off-theory bowling employed by the English, but still taking opportunities to score. After half an hour, McCartney glanced Fielder to leg for four taking the score to 31. Rhodes and Braun were brought on and the batsmen played the spinners circumspectly, with most runs coming in singles. The score moved towards 71 when Crawford was brought on. Trumper hit his first ball for four, but later on Crawford had his revenge, having Trumper edge behind on the stroke of lunch, falling one short of his half-century. The Australians went to the break at one for 84, with McCartney on 34. After lunch, Hill joined McCartney. McCartney could only run three runs to his score before he was bowled by Crawford. Noble joined Hill and the two took the score past 100, but the bowling was tight and eventually claimed the wicket of Hill when he was clean bowled by Fielder for 16. The Australians were now 3 for 113. 
Armstrong arrived at wicket to hear his welcome after having stood aside from a recent Victorian New South Wales Shield game over a dispute with the Victorian Cricket Board, the spectators clearly showing whose side they were on. Noble, who had spent 40 minutes making 10 runs, was then nearly caught in the slips. Armstrong, though, started positively, finding the boundary three times. The score moved to 150, although Noble was game missed, this time by Gunn at mid-on. Braun was brought back into the attack, and this slowed the rate of scoring. By the time the 4 o'clock adjournment, the Australians had moved to 3 for 160. Noble started strong after tea, heating fielded twice to the straight boundary in the first over. However, in the next over, Armstrong was out without adding to his tea score of 31, becoming Crawford's third victim. Joined by McAllister, Noble continued to up his scoring rate, taking 10 off the next fielder over. Shortly after, his half-century was raised, or should have been stumped immediately afterwards off Barnes. With a score approaching 200, McAllister called for two, but was run out trying to get home, departing for 10 with the score at 5 197. Ransford joined Noble and took the score past 200. Rose was introduced to the attack, and finally Noble's luck ran out when he was caught by Braun for 61, having spent two and a half hours at the crease. He was replaced by Cotter, who had three consecutive boundaries off Rhodes. In the next over, Braun placed five men on the boundary, but Cotter used this to his advantage, taking two twos in a single. However, this was the end of his contribution, bowled for 17 by a returning Crawford. Carter joined Ransford and the two men saw through to stumps, with the Australians, after a slow batting day, ending on 7 for 2.55. Good conditions awaited the players for the start of day two. However, the Australians didn't take advantage of this, losing their final three wickets for only 11 runs. Ransford was unlucky, slipping and falling after being set back by Carter to be run out for 27, whilst Hazlitt and Saunders could only manage one run between them. Fielder and Crawford claimed a wicket apiece, giving Crawford the figures of 5 for 79 in 29 overs, his first five-wicket haul. The Australian total of 266 was seen as a low one given the conditions. England opened with Fane at a debutant Hobbs. Hobbs started well, cutting Saunders to the boundary, and was unlucky to survive when he only just avoided being run out off a direct hit. The score moved to 27 before Armstrong was introduced. He was successful in his first over, bowling Fane off his pads, bringing about the lunch break. Gunn joined Hobbs after the break. The score moved slowly, but safely, up past 50. Hobbs upped the tempo with an on-drive boundary, but Gunn was in out for 15, trapped LBW by Cotter. He was replaced by Hutchings with a score at 2 for 61. Hobbs is now going at a good pace, with three boundaries bringing up his half-century. Hutchings then hit Saunders for two boundaries as the total started to push up to 100. The two were able to make their way to T with a score of 113, with Hobbs on 59 and Hutchings 24. Hobbs started after to T with a drive for four off McCartney, but soon after gave his first chance at the innings, with McCartney dropping a catch off Armstrong at square leg. Hutchings now started to get on top of the bowling, finding the boundary against all he faced, despite Noble rotating through six options. The score moved to 160 before Hobbs was finally out, falling 17 runs short of a debut century when his clean bowl by Cotter. He chaired a 99-run stand with Hutchings and was well applauded for his efforts by the crowd. Braun replaced him and started with the boundary first ball. Hutchings brought up his 50 and continued to accelerate, chopping Saunders for 4 before launching McCartney back over his head for 6, bringing up the team 200. More boundaries, including 2 in and over off Saunders, saw his score go past Hobbs, before another boundary off Hazlitt brought up his maiden test century. He continued on in the same form while Stumps approached, hitting Cotter for 3 boundaries in the last over before the end of the day. He finished on 117 not out, with Braun batting more cautiously for 15. The English score stood at 3 for 246, trailing only by 20 runs and in a strong position heading into day 3. The English began the day strongly, with Braun finding on same boundary twice in the first over off Cotter, with Hutchings picked up where he left off with a hook for 4. This saw the English go past the Australians total, but then Hutchings was immediately out, yorked by a fast one from Cotter. 
His 126 included 21 fours and a six, and included a tremendous ovation for his performance. Newman Hardstaff laboured for 40 minutes in making 12 before he was bowled by Saunders. Half the side had been dismissed with a total on 287, a lead of 21. Rhodes joined and the two men batted cautiously, and after play had been going for an hour, only 41 runs had been scored. Noble Sykes threw his bowlers, but couldn't gain another breakthrough by lunch, with a score reaching 299 by that point. Following lunch, Braun brought up the 300 with a cut shot for three first ball. Rhodes found the boundary a couple of times, but otherwise scoring continued to be slow. Finally, when Braun had reached 49, Cotter returned and bowled him, giving the fast man his fourth wicket of the innings. Newman Crawford was looking to be more expansive, hitting Saunders for four, but was then out, well caught on the boundary after attempting another big hit for 16. Rhodes then followed soon after, having made 32 before he was bowled by Saunders. Things were now eight down for 360. The final two wickets managed to add a further 22 runs before the innings ended. Armstrong and Cotter both took a wicket apiece, with Cotter finishing with his second test fifer, or they'd gone for 142 runs in doing so. Lingus' score of 382 gave them a useful 116 run lead, giving them the advantage in the test at the halfway point. With 90 minutes remaining in the day, the Australians made the best possible start. Opening with Trumper and Noble, they played much more aggressively on the placid pitch than the English had. They put pressure on the bowling with regular boundaries, whilst also running judiciously between the wickets. Fane rotated through all his bowlers, but the Australian pair did not give the slightest opening for the rest of the day. Noble brought up his 50 just before stumps, whilst Trumper ended the day on the 46. The Australians had wiped 96 runs off the deficit, and only trailed by 20 heading into day 4, still with all their wickets intact. The 100 came up in the second over of day 4, whilst Trumper brought up his half-century shortly afterwards. The deficit was wiped within 20 minutes of play commencing, and when Trumper hit fielder for two boundaries in an over, the Australians were in the ascendancy. However, the game shifted. In the next over, Trumper was trapped LBW by Crawford for 63. In Crawford's next over, he bowled a chest-high full toss at Noble. Noble attempted a hook shot, but only managed to direct the ball onto his stumps to be out for 64. Number 3 Hill, who hadn't looked at all comfortable, was then clean bowled by fielder for 3. The Australians, having been done for 126, were now 3 for 135 with their most accomplished batsmen back in the pavilion. Two Victorians, McAllister and Armstrong, then combined to settle the innings. They put on close to 30 runs until just before lunch a miscommunication saw McAllister run out for 15. The Australians went to the break at 4 for 162, a lead of only 46. McCartney joined Armstrong after the interval. Armstrong started confidently, cutting fielder and driving Crawford to the boundary, whilst McCartney reached double figures by hitting fielder for a boundary and then three. Through entertaining cricket, the 200 was raised, with Armstrong moving into the 40s by driving Barnes to three, whilst McCartney hit Crawford for consecutive boundaries. The bowlers were rotated, but none caused the pair difficulty as Armstrong raised his 50. The two batsmen continued to find the boundary and couldn't be separated when T was taken, having put on over 100 runs in taking the Australians to four for 266. The English were desperate for a breakthrough, and Armstrong obliged to stay after T, being bowled by Barnes for an excellent 77. He hit seven boundaries and shared a 106 run stand with McCartney. Ramsey came to the crease and immediately hit Barnes for four. At the other end, McCartney continued on, bringing up his first test victory with a single off Crawford. The 300 was raised, but then McCartney was out for 54, edging behind off Barnes. Ransford followed soon after 18 off the same bowler. The Australians were now 7 for 312. Carter and Cotter then came together. Both batted with some risk, but fortunately for them their sky shots fell into gaps, picking up boundaries and taking the score on a 360 at stumps, with both batsmen into the 20s. The Australians had given themselves a strong position, leading by 244 with three wickets still in hand. Following the Sunday rest day, the match resumed for day five on the Monday. Cotter survived a drop chance in the slips, but was then trapped LBW by Crawford, not adding to his overnight score of 27. 
Carter, joined by Hazlitt, then decided to hit out. He had four boundaries off three overs to take his score into the 40s. Carter then survived a something chance, but lost his partner, Hazlitt, for three, bowled by Barnes. Carter added another five runs to his score, passing 50, before he became Barnes' fifth victim, ending the innings on 397. Carter's second 50 in his first two tests had allowed the Australians to set a target of 282 for the English. Barnes with 5 for 72 was a pick of the bowlers, whilst Crawford added 3 to the 5 he took in the first innings to finish with 8 for the match. The English made a solid start, reaching 26 without loss before lunch was taken. Following the break, Hobbs and Fane continued to build the total comfortably, raising it to 50. At this point, Noble turned to Armstrong and himself. The Australian captain got the breakthrough, bowling Hobbs to 28 before trapping new man gun in the same over for a second ball duck. The English had now lost two wickets in compiling 54 runs, and the match was once again finely balanced. Hutchings joined Fane on a pitch for starting to play a few tricks, with both batsmen conscious of a wearing spot on a good length. Saunders replaced Armstrong and was struck first ball for four by Fane. Hazlitt then came on for Noble before conceding two boundaries in his first over to Hutchings, with Noble coming straight back on. The fielding was good and restricted the scoring, but the two batsmen got to tee without further loss at 2 for 93. The Hunters raced shortly after tee. Fane brought up his 50 to deserve cheers from the crowd, was then immediately out, chopping a ball from Armstrong onto his stumps. In the next over, McCartney replaced Noble and nearly had Hutchings out first ball, with the inside edge only barely missing the wicket. He never looked comfortable against the left arm spinner and was eventually out, caught by Cotter for 39. This led the English at 4 for 131. Hartsoff joined Braun and the two were able to see out the rest of the day, although Braun had some luck when an inside edge nearly bowled him off Noble. The English ended the day on 4 for 159, still requiring 123 for victory. Most pundits had the English slight favourites, but it looked like another game was going down to the wire. Both batsmen started the day 6 on 17 not out. Hartsoff could only add 2 to that total before he was out hooking Cotter to Ransford at deep square leg boundary. Newman Rhodes was then missed in the slips by McAllister off Cotter, whilst the bowler had an unsuccessful LBW appeal against Braun in the same over. Most of the run scoring is in singles, and the two got the target required below 100. Saunders was introduced, but Braun hit him for four first ball. Just as the batsmen were looking to get on top, Armstrong was brought on and immediately bowled Braun for 30. Crawford replaced him. The tension continued to build on the batsmen. Rhodes cut a ball to third man and settled for a run, but Crawford sent him back, leading him to be run out. The English were now 7 for 198, still needing 84 for victory. Barnes arrived and took the score past 200 off the first ball he faced. Crawford then struck Armstrong back over his head for 6, although he was then dropped by Saunders' next ball. However, this didn't cost the Australians, as Armstrong made no mistake in the next over off Saunders' bowling when Crawford sliced the ball to third man. Hutchings came to the crease and managed to see through to lunch with Barnes, with English now 8 for 221, still requiring 61 for victory. Following lunch, the two bats had moved the score along with clever running taking the target required below 50. The crowd was pensive, but their tension was relieved when Armstrong shot Hutchings LBW for 16. At 9 for 243, Fielder entered as the last man, still requiring 39 runs to victory. Once again, clever running helped keep the scoreboard ticking over, getting the score up to 261 at drinks. Noble rotated his bowlers looking for the final wicket, but Barnes in particular was batting well, keeping out the good balls and taking every opportunity to score. The pair kept reducing down the total until scores were tied. Barnes then pushed the ball to Hazlitt and took off. Hazlitt swooped and threw at the stumps with Barnes short of his ground. The ball missed, giving the English the victory by a single wicket. Fielder finished on 18 not out, whilst Barnes was a hero with 38, giving the English a sensational win. It was the second time the English had beaten Australia by one wicket, after Jessup's match back in 1902. It was the most exciting start to a test series had been seen to this point, and meant that the teams were locked at one all heading into the third test in Adelaide in three days. 
This is the end of part one of our episode covering the 1907-08 series against England. Part two, where we'll see how the series will play out, will be out next week. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless, and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.